listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. How do you feel this Monday? Oh, celebration. What a dance we danced last night. Did you scar your kids a little bit by shouting, School's on, suckers! Last night when the deal came in, I might have done that. Suck on that, little humans. Kids are in school, but for how long? And has this been another own goal by the Ford government? Spending on CUPE in advance of contract negotiations with OSSTF, that's the union in charge of high school teachers, and the always militant ETFO, the union that represents elementary school teachers. You may recall that in the past, ETFO's gone out with no warning at all. So what's coming down the pipe now that we got a deal with CUPE? And as CUPE like to say, hey, thanks for opening up the piggy bank, Dougie. Oh, that stings. We're going to get to more on that in our next segment, but POTUS is tweeting. The president is on Twitter right now. President Donald Trump is defending his decision to pull back U.S. troops from northern Syria, which is clearing the way for an expected Turkish assault and essentially abandons Kurdish fighters who fought alongside American forces to defeat ISIS. So these are American allies that essentially now... Trump has said, yeah, whatever, have at him. Here's a gem of a tweet. Just came out just a little bit ago. Here it is from Donald Trump. As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. I've done before. That is the president of the free world, leader of the free world, president of the United States, no longer the leader of the free world. I make that argument. So in my great and unmatched wisdom, I demand that you listen to the rest of this radio program or I may totally destroy and obliterate your economy. Coming up tonight, of course, it is debate night. Oh, baby. If you like the politics, then this is the Super Bowl of Canadian politics right here. A slug them out that goes 7 o'clock tonight. And everything, everything in the setup of this debate is designed to ensure that it sucks. Because it's going to suck. And you know why? It, there will be more leaders on the stage in the Canadian Museum of History tonight than at any other point in Canadian political history. And there's a two-hour debate. All of these candidates... And then they got a two-hour debate divided into five segments, each with its own distinct theme, affordability, environment, energy, indigenous issues, leadership in Canada on the world stage, polarization, human rights, and immigration. That's the last one. Segments will feature questions from ordinary Canadians. Those are always terrible. And a question from one of the five moderators. It's six leaders and five moderators and questions from the hoi polloi. We're not going to get anything out of this. It's going to suck. And you know what we're not going to get? Oh, baby, we're not going to get July 24th, 1984. Cue up this chestnut. This is Mulrooney taking Turner out behind the woodshed. You, sir, owe the Canadian people a deep apology for having indulged in that kind of practice with those kinds of appointments. Well, I've told you and told the Canadian people, Mr. Mulrooney, that I had no option. 
Well, Truman, your next you, question. You please. had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. And I am not going to ask Canadians to pay the price. You had an option, sir, to say no. And you chose to say yes I... to the old attitudes and the old stories of the Liberal Party. That, sir, if I may say respectfully, that is not good enough for Canadians. I had no option. If I was able that to is an avowal of failure. That is a confession I, of non-leadership. And this country needs leadership. You had an option, sir. Mr. You Turner, could have done better. Mr. Ooh, I should have put a warning in there. I should, have, I should have warned the kids that that was extreme political graphic violence. My goodness. Uh, you, sir. Anytime you give a you, sir, comma, there's a haymaker coming right after it. Nobody ever says, you, sir are qualified never and then if we're not going to get something like that maybe please could we get a little something a little stock day oh how about this one from 2000 i have said consistently and our policy is very clear and i'll say it again and the whole country has seen our briefing notes you may as well look at them too no two-tier health care now i've said that very clearly our members have said that very clearly it is a clear position no two-tiered health care. And yet you, sir, have taken out an ad saying that, that we are not telling the truth. So I want to ask you, and would you do one of two things? Either right now, sir, would you call me a liar, please, or would you pull those ads that are wrong? Maybe would you, you do one of the two things? Why don't you just put a wetsuit back on? Because remember that? And he pulls out the sign, and it looks like he drew it during the debate. Mr. Day, could you please pay attention to the debate and quit doodling? So are we going to get a gem like that? Or how about this? This is another beauty. This is Jack Layton to Michael Ignatieff on April 2nd, 2011. Why do you have the worst attendance record in the House of Commons of any member of Parliament? If you want to be Prime Minister, you better learn how to be a member of Parliament first. You know, most Canadians, if they don't show up for work, they don't get a promotion. That is savage. That's Jack Layton just taking his cane and just braining. Iggy, like that scene from The Untouchables, you know, when De Niro comes behind him with the baseball bat and just smashes the guy. That was essentially the political equivalent of that. So with those three great debate moments in mind, here's Daryl Bricker about whether or not we're going to see a good slug him out tonight. Well, everybody always talks about the big knockout punch, but uh, we can all point to them through history. But knockout punches per debates are, are very, uh, very, very rare. I think basically what they're all looking for is some form of a technical knockout, uh, where they somehow they, they win the fight based on points or, or they do something on that basis. But for Andrew Scheer, who's really not that well known to Canadians still, this is an opportunity for him. Uh, to actually present himself as uh, somebody that they could see as being the Prime Minister. To this point, he really hasn't had the chance to do that. That is Daryl Bricker talking about you're probably not going to get that knockout punch tonight. You're not going to get the sign. You're not going to get anything weird. You know, you're not probably going to get a whole lot because you got six of them jibber-jabbering, another five journalists trying to tell you how smart they are, plus then a couple of hoi polloi average Joes with some questions. I'm going to watch it anyway. It's going to be amazing. But I'm going to complain about it because that's what we do. Let's take you to the campaign trail where what in the world are the conservatives thinking today? Because Andrew Scheer, in advance of this big debate, pivotal moment, what did they promise? They promise this. Today I am pleased to announce that a new conservative government will take the unprecedented step of making all nine existing national museums 100% admission free free entry
for every Canadian, every visitor, 365 days a year. What? Free admission to museums? I, this is the pressing problem we have in the country? We can't get back to balance. Mr. Shear can't tell us how he's going to pay for all his promises. But you know what? $21 million bucks to go to museums for free. I'm really hoping we get some kind of a coalition government, and I know this is not going to happen, but if we could get a combi of this ridiculous liberal plan to pay people to go camping and then free museums, maybe we can get the people to camp at the museums. Uh, See how that all comes together? All right, in our next segment, I'm going to ask the question, did the conservatives ask Doug Ford to fold on the QP file. Next segment, Mr. Shear will answer that question directly, but I want to go to the liberals and Justin Trudeau in a school talking to teachers. Mm, check out this little bit of preening. I spent uh, a number of years uh, as, uh, as a teacher in the classroom, and I still consider myself to be a teacher in the way I, I try and engage with the room. Oh, God. Do teach all of us a thing or two, please. But let's get to the meat of the matter, shall we? Here is Justin Trudeau scoring political points off the opponent that he's not facing. I think uh, a lot of parents across the province breathe breathe the sigh of relief knowing they won't have to find emergency uh, daycare today uh, because of the... Uh, challenge with the QP and the support workers, uh, but the, real, the, the reality is uh, the cuts that uh, Doug Ford has already brought into education uh, are uh, are felt, being uh, being felt uh, right across the province. And um, right now, we're in an election where the option is to double down on conservative approaches. That is Justin Trudeau speaking this morning in advance of the big debate. Again, tying Mr. Shear to Mr. Ford and saying, well, hey, parents, you know, everything's good. Sure, fine, but I'm a teacher at heart. I still think I'm a teacher. We want to take you to an ongoing situation along the Bloor Street viaduct. The last three hours, there has been a major disruption and protesters are now being arrested for blocking the Bloor Street Viaduct. All of this is part of a global protest to raise awareness for climate change. It's an environmental group called Extinction Rebellion that says it's going to prompt these major disruptions not only in Canada but right around the world, all because of what they say, society's failure to act on climate change. Now, This whole thing was supposed to last half an hour, but of course it is still going on. We have reporters on the scene. We'll try and get you a little bit more as soon as that becomes available. Once again, we now have arrests of protesters who are blocking the Bloor Street Viaduct today. One of many protests going on not only in Canada, but right around the world and expect more of this to come. Let's get to the strike that did not happen, and were you like so many other parents, glued to the Twitter machine, glued to the television? I know that I was watching it last night uh, live, and I decided not to tell the kids. We were not, we did, this is the decision we made. When, when it started to happen, it was like, well, don't tell the kids either way, because if there is a strike, they'll just be like, well, we're staying up to midnight, and I'm not doing that. 
Uh, and so we didn't say anything. And then w- the, this is silly because my son's downstairs, you know, playing on his PS4. He knew as soon as I did. I mean, his little community is like, dudes, we got to go back. So here's a question for you. Obviously, a strike would have put an enormous amount of pressure on Andrew Scheer, especially today at the debate. And you already see Justin Trudeau trying to score some points on that. And uh, Andrew Horvath was speaking this morning, still trying to score some political points, even though we have a deal. So here is a question from the CBC, a direct question to Andrew Scheer this morning. Did you or anyone in your campaign communicate with the Ontario provincial government? Were there any discussions between yourself, your team, and the Ontario government about settling the strike in the midst of the election? Mm-hmm. So uh, like all parents in Ontario, I'm glad that uh, uh, kids will be in school today. Uh, I think if there's one parent who's disappointed in the strike action being resolved today, uh, it's Justin Trudeau. And it's uh, quite disgusting uh, that he was trying to politicize a uh, kid's education for his own uh, personal uh, partisan gain. Were there any discussions between your team, yourself, and the Ontario government no. about settling the strike? None. No. That is a no from Andrew Scheer and that there was no collusion no collusion between the federal conservatives and the progressive conservatives of Ontario to come up with some kind of a deal last minute to avoid this strike. Now, let's kind of go through sort of the aftermath of all of this, what's happened, because, you know, as we look at the deal itself, you can say, well, that's the government folding, or is it not? Can't we all just get along? Can we not just all be, you know, sore or good winners, rather? This is Laura Walton, the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board, saying that the deal with the government, with the Ontario government, includes a reinvestment in schools that will see more jobs. Now, Walton said that investment's around $20 million and thanked the government which when you're the government really sucks because then she goes on to say this incredibly hurtful thing. Thanks for opening the piggy bank and allowing us to get the services that we needed for our students. They'll thank you too. That, to a conservative, is a punch in the nose, is what that is. Hey, thanks for opening up the piggy bank. Thanks for just waving the cash around. Thanks for opening up the piggy bank? Well... We'll leave it to smooth-talking Stevie Lecce here. Try and keep calm about it, Brohim. I think for a lot of folks, you know, you lose hope if you don't understand, if, if you don't look at the long-term picture mm-hmm. as a student of history. These things happen. Pressurized tactics, deadline bargaining, walking away from the table. That could happen. We just have to remain sort of calm and focus on our kids, and we did that, and we got a deal. That is Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, who I got to say, watching that press conference last night, struck me again. What a trade-up the Ford government got when they shuffled the cards earlier this year and shuffled Lisa Thompson out of that portfolio and Stephen Lecce in, even though, you know, wherever you stand on this, whether you agree or disagree with the Ford government's actions, it's clear that Mr. Lecce is a far more uh, persuasive and under control communicator than his predecessor in that job. But so there's no strike and yet no credit for the provincial government. Here's Andrea Horvath this morning saying, oh yeah, sure, they signed a deal. Why did they sign a deal? Well, no, it wasn't the federal conservatives putting the pressure on. No, no, no. 
This was a pragmatic, this was not a pragmatic decision by the province. No, there were other forces at play that made the province settle. Here is Andrea Horvath this morning. It took the parents, it took the students, it took the education workers, it took all of these folks, uh, uh, you know, all of the hard work that they did to try to put pressure on the government uh, to finally get them uh, to, uh, you know, to negotiate a deal. But that didn't have to go that far. I mean, it didn't have to, you know, get to the point where people were so stressed over the weekend. So there. It was, hey, folks, it was you. It was other folks who were upset. It was the parents. It was the teachers. It was the support workers. It was the students upset. And that is what got the government to reverse course. We've seen a pattern of this from the Ford government in the face of stiff resistance, sort of changing its mind. And you can be of two opinions about that. That is either democracy in action and a responsive government listening or a ham-fisted, hard-headed government that charges ahead with zero consultation and then gets caught out and has to back away. By the way, where is DOFO? Let's hope that the lesson was learned, and let's hope that Mr. Ford comes out of hiding uh, to, to tell people uh, that, in fact, he has learned his lesson, and he's going to back away from the, uh, the severe cuts that he's making. That is Andrea Horvath with a little jab there. Doug Ford obviously still keeping a very low profile because of the federal election campaign. It's so weird to see Jason Kenney right here. You know, Jason Kenney comes to Ontario to wave the conservative banner. Meanwhile, Doug Ford, he goes to these events. He was at an event this weekend. Uh, he, he's done some fundraising in other parts of the uh, of the province, but not talking. And I don't think you're going to see him at all. Let's talk vape news real quickly because there's new restrictions at the local, state, and federal level in the United States that are poised to wipe out thousands of fruit, candy, and dessert-flavored vapes, all because of, you know, the ongoing concerns about vape illnesses. But there's been a bit of a pushback now. Experts who study tobacco policy fear that a kind of a scattershot approach on this clampdown, not only in the United States but here in Canada, could have damaging unintended consequences, including driving adults who vape back to cigarettes. And that, keep in mind, is the leading preventable cause of death. This could be the biggest improvement in public health in the United States towards a public health disaster in which cigarettes continue to be the dominant nicotine product, that according to an addiction researcher at Penn State University. So as we get into this vaping backlash, we're sort of losing sight of what it's there for in the first place. For a lot of people who can't quit cigarettes or are trying to off-ramp, they can be a good thing. Now, most of the cases in terms of the problems with the vaping illness seem to have involved products that contain the marijuana compound THC, and it's often obtained from illegal sources. And the suspect Dank Vapes, that is a brand, D-A-N-K, Dank, can I say that on the radio? That meme is, all I hear about is in my house is, you know, Dank memes, but Dank Vapes are a thing. And it's a familiar product in the underground marijuana economy. Not legal. Not a tested brand. It's just a name on a box or a cartridge. And often it's different companies. But it comes in colorful boxes, names like Cherry Kush and Blue Dream. They're homemade vapes. They, they don't look different from what you can buy, especially in the United States, at legal dispensaries. It's not legal to sell anything like that in Canada. But a lot of the attention now uh, is on these dank vapes. And you can actually buy cartridges 
from China for pennies. And dank vapes, you know, not hard to find. Boxes, cartridges, all available online. And that leads me to what's happening here in Toronto today. Because city staff in Toronto want retailers, vape retailers, to be licensed now to sell e-cigarettes and related products. This is a report going to the Health Board, the Health Committee, a report saying that the Smoke-Free Ontario Act prohibits the sale of vapor products to people under 19, and city staff believe that young people may be getting the products due to the growth in availability of them at retail stores. The report cites research from the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit that inspection by local health units has improved compliance. So it really is up to Toronto Public Health to try and enforce all the regulations, but Hamilton and London have already got licensing systems, but Toronto doesn't. So should Toronto have a licensing program for vapes? A license for retailers to sell vaping products is proposed to be set at 645 bucks a year, and... Another 350 bucks, 315, pardon me, once you have it, you to renew it. Now, if you already have a business license with the city, like you're already a convenience store selling them, you don't have to sell extra. But should that new vape store down the street have to pay 650 bucks to be able to open? Interesting thing to think about. Do we have time to do a little bit talk with Andy? Is Andy Patton with us? York Regional Police is with us. I want to talk to him real quickly about pot growth. There's been his new York Regional seizure of $5 million in illegal cannabis. Andy's on the line. Uh, Andy, I thought weed was legal. <laughs> well, weed for the most part is legal, uh, except when growing and grown and possessed outside of the legal restrictions. So that's what we've been dealing with uh, regularly up here in York Region. So this is a case of people, you know, uh, doing the whole thing where I'm allowed to grow five plants for other people, but they don't actually have the real paperwork for that? Yeah, sort of. It, it, they're, they're working with, it, it's organized crime related, and they're working around the, the medical marijuana old legislation where they could have licenses or people could possess licenses, they could pool licenses and have somebody grow on their behalf. So uh, what we've been seeing in, in operations, this has been a couple of years now we've been seeing this, where um, th- there will be growers that have pooled licenses for medical use. So in this particular case we're talking about, uh, that just happened a couple of weeks ago here in York Region, uh, they had licenses to grow just over, f- uh, I want to say, 600, well, there was right about 600 plants, uh, both outdoor and indoor, at this location where they were growing. Uh, but we'd received a lot of complaints from the community uh, that uh, there was other activity going on there. And uh, through our investigation, revealed that there was uh, 2,360 plants being grown uh, at what used to be a flower shop right on Highway 11 coming out of Bradford um, and it's in King Township where it's actually located, uh, but a very well-traveled uh, stretch of property there, and, and it was the citizen complaints that once again led us to, to find this overgrow. 2,300 plants, your math, you have that as a street value of $4.7 million. What are you selling it joint by joint? Well, those are the numbers are coming from uh, our officers with our guns, gangs, and drug enforcement unit. Uh, they they tally it up, but uh, yeah, I mean it's a, it's a significant seizure and one of many that we've that we've done that are like this. And you know, our message from uh, our chief is that uh, he has expressed concerns about this in the past, but it's organized crime that they're using the sale of this illegal cannabis into into the markets to fuel other things that they're up to with regards to uh, manufacturing of um, synthetic drugs drug trafficking, um, gun trafficking, a number of other things that organized crime groups are up to. So uh, that, that's why it's important to us, and that's why our community should continue to care about this. 
Andy Patton is with York Regional Police and join me on the line. Thanks for being on the program, Andy. Thank you. We have breaking news from Toronto right now where there are arrests of climate change protesters who have been blocking the Bloor Street Viaduct. Priya Sam's Global News reporter is live on scene and joins me on the line. Hi, Priya. Good afternoon, Alan. What's happening where you are? Well, Alan, we've seen at least a dozen people now loaded into police cruisers into uh, the back of a police van. Uh, it has still been uh, relatively peaceful. Uh, Obviously, people are being arrested, um, but there has not been any violence, um, any yelling, anything like that. Uh, The people who have remained here after being asked to leave by police seem to have expected that they would be arrested. And give me a sense of, so is the Bourse Street Viaduct blocked in both directions? What's the impact on traffic? It is blocked in both directions, yes, and it has been this way since 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, Now, the organizers of the event tell me that they had been in contact with police before. In fact, police were here, and they had blocked it off knowing this protest was happening. But around 10.30, they did ask all of the protesters to leave. Uh, They refused, and then the arrest started just afternoon. And and when you're talking about arrest, and I've seen some of the video being played on Global News, are we talking about just people getting up and going, or are they having to be carried away? A little bit of both. At first, they were just going up. They were standing up and going, and now they are sitting down, refusing to go, and they have to, uh, have been carried into the back of the police cruisers. And Priya, any sense? And I know this is a big deal. It's going on, but I think drivers are going to want to know. We got a sense of when that might reopen. No, we haven't heard anything about that, Alan, but uh, it seems that they are arresting the last couple of people here who are refusing to leave. Uh, So I would anticipate that within the next hour or so, uh, it it will be reopened. It seems that most of the other people who are standing sort of outside of the protest zone, uh, I would guess they will probably leave as soon as these last few protesters are taken away. And the last two or three are being loaded into the van right now. All right, Priya, thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the program. You're welcome. Stay with us here on Global News for more in that developing news situation. Houston Rockets star James Harden has now apologized to China after the general manager of the Houston Rockets posted a pro-democracy tweet in support of protesters in Hong Kong. Harden and the Rockets are currently in China for an NBA exhibition basketball game. That's awkward. GM Daryl Morley had since deleted his tweet, which read, quote, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, unquote. Here's James Harden speaking to reporters. Yeah, we apologize, um, you know. You know, we love China, we love, you know, playing there. Now, China's official basketball association has said it will suspend cooperation with the Houston Rockets over the tweet that it has deemed improper. The Houston Rockets general manager tried Sunday to defuse that situation over his now-deleted tweet that showed support for Hong Kong anti-government protesters, saying that he did not intend to offend any of the team's Chinese fans or sponsors. Other criticism came from Tencent, which is a major media partner of the NBA in China, with a streaming deal that is worth $1.5 billion over the next five years and Chinese state television, both of which said they would not be showing any Rockets games. Now, it's not clear if all the apologies and groveling by the NBA will change any of that. 
China has teams in the U.S. playing preseason games this week. The Rockets are about to play two games in Japan and the L.A. Lakers with one of the biggest global sports stars in the world, of course, LeBron James. And the Nets, the Lakers and Nets, are set to play Thursday in Shanghai and then Saturday in Shenzhen. Co-owner of the Nets is a co-founder of the Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba. And he posted an open letter on his Facebook page late last night saying that Morley had stepped on what he described as a quote-unquote third rail issue when it comes to China and Hong Kong. And now this is where it gets weird, because Ted Cruz now has weighed in, the U.S. Senator, who said, We are better than this. Human rights should not be for sale. The NBA should not be assisting Chinese communist censorship, said Cruz in a tweet, who is a lifelong Rockets fan. There are Democratic presidential candidates as well, saying China is using its economic power to silence critics, even those in the United States. And I want to read this for you. This is a statement from, or this is the entry from Wikipedia, if you put in soft power in China. Soft power of China is the indirect and non-military influence of the People's Republic of China that can be observed outside the country and around the world. And now you can observe it directly on the floors of the NBA. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame that China can be able to silence critics of pro-democracy protesters around the world. I think the Rockets should be shunned, not for what was said, but by the obsequious way they have now pulled it back, and there just seems to be no backbone. It's all about the money. Thank you so much for spending some time here on Debate Day. Let's quickly check the campaign trail where the conservatives to say in advance of the debate said you should be smarter. You're a bit of a you're a bit of a dummy. You know what you should do? Get a little culture in your life. Maybe visit a museum. You like those museums are expensive, man. I can't I can't afford to take my kids to museums. Come on. Oh, Andrew Shear's got something for you. How about this, Andy? Free entry for every Canadian, every visitor, three hundred and sixty five days a year. It's a move that will save Canadian families more than $21 million every year. Yeah, there you go. You get to go to the museum for free. Got no, no plan for climate change, but check out the museum. The nine national museums include the National Gallery of Canada, the Canadian War Museum, the Canadian Science and Technology Museum in Ottawa, and the Canadian Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg. Here is Justin Trudeau, the Liberal leader, who was also campaigning this morning in advance of the debate tonight, reminding us that when he's speaking to us as the Prime Minister, he's, well, he's teaching us something. I spent uh, a number of years uh, as, uh, as a teacher in the classroom, and I still consider myself to be a teacher in the way I, I try and engage with the room. Yeah. That is Justin Trudeau. Let's go international. The United States has made an abrupt decision that essentially abandons Kurdish fighters who fought alongside American troops against Islamic State militants in northeastern Syria. The Trump administration says U.S. forces will move aside, clearing the way for a long-expected Turkish assault across the border. 
Turkey considers the Kurdish fighters terrorists. Lawmakers here at home have warned allowing Turkey to carry out the attack could lead to a Kurdish massacre and send American allies a troubling message that the U.S. will not live up to its commitments. The sudden move follows a call between Turkey's leader and President Trump, who tweeted this morning in all caps, we will fight where it is to our benefit. Top House Republican Kevin McCarthy's worried, though, telling Fox and friends he wants to make sure the U.S. keeps its word to those who fight with it. Sagar Magani at the White House. And then just a couple of minutes ago, the president tweeting that in his great and unmatched wisdom that he's going to watch Turkey to make sure they don't do anything they shouldn't. To the U.K., where Britain's prime minister is now looking into a fascinating case that involves the wife of an American diplomat in a fatal car crash. Boris Johnson says he will speak with the U.S. ambassador to Britain on an American diplomat's wife who apparently left the country after reportedly becoming a suspect in a fatal crash. Johnson says he doesn't think it right to use the process of diplomatic immunity for this type of purpose. The crash a few weeks ago killed a 19-year-old after his motorcycle collided with a car near a base which is home to a signals intelligence station operated by the U.S. Air Force. Charles de Ledesma. London. Under the 1961 Vienna Convention, did you know this? This is the thing that governs diplomats and family members. It says that they're immune from prosecution in their host country as long as they are not nationals of that country. However, that immunity can be waived by the state that has sent them. Now, the woman in this particular case left the United Kingdom despite telling police that she had no plans to leave. That is going to be something that's going to continue to make news in the next couple of days. Keep your eye on that one. Here's a look at a couple of other interesting stories. We begin with love. Love of the puppy variety. Teachers at an Indiana elementary school have now implemented a zero dating policy for fifth grade students arguing that these young relationships have led to many broken hearts, which then carry over into the classroom. In a recent letter actually sent to parents, three teachers wrote that many students are dating and, quote, breaking up within days of each other. To avoid these devastating breakups, these are grade 5 students, folks. Students are given a deadline to end your relationship. That's it. It's over for you. Now, love hurts especially when it drops a dime on you. This is from the New York Post today. A Texas man's walk down the aisle took a wrong turn when he decided to rob a bank the day before his wedding so he could pay for his fiancée's ring. And then she saw the surveillance images and called cops. So instead of exchanging vows, this guy is going to be charged with aggravated robbery. He basically said to the cops, I'm getting married tomorrow, I don't have enough money, so he robbed a bank. And then after the heist, he threw his cars out of the clo- uh, his clothes out of the car as he sped away. Police put the picture up on their Facebook page, and his fiance saw him, called him, and said, did you just rob a bank? She convinced him he needed to turn himself in. He did, along with the clothes and the gun. It's unclear if and when the couple will tie the knot. Now, when it comes to love and crime, don't hide yourself away. A Florida woman faces multiple charges after authorities say she climbed into the ceiling of a store to avoid being 
arrested for shoplifting. The 37-year-old went into the store's restroom on Friday, then removed some tiles so she could climb up into the ceiling. Deputies removed tiles in several spots in a five-hour effort to catch her. She ignored the commands to come down, just pretended like she wasn't there. So the cops leave, and a deputy stays behind, and then sees her climbing down from the ceiling, arrests her. She was arrested on charges of criminal mischief, theft, and resisting law enforcement. Careful! Oh my! Fido's got a gun! An Oklahoma woman was shot in the thigh when a dog inside her vehicle jumped into the back seat and caused the gun to go off. It was a yellow lab who actually belongs to the driver of the vehicle, a 79-year-old man. The dog jumps into the back. The 22 caliber goes off. The woman in the front is actually his care worker. That is going to be an apology. What's the card you get for that? I'm sorry that my dog jumped on my gun that shot you. Forget about it. Snakes! We have this last one now. Officials in Florida say trappers have captured a record-setting python as part of a growing effort that encourages hunters to remove invasive snakes from the Everglades. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation says this thing was 18 feet long. It weighed 98 pounds. It is the largest snake captured by the new, and I love this, Python Action Team. They actually, so there's a commission that says that these things are an invasive species in Florida and they got to get rid of them. So they've set up something called Python Action Team. Python Action Team. The commission says hunting female Burmese pythons is critical because, get this, every time they breed, 30 to 60 new snakes, which is why you need a Python Action Team.